0: Felt you. Welcome to the Village Oak Tree for november fifteenth, twenty twenty three. Hello again, my name's Terrence O'Donnell and I'm glad to be back to your digital village with more news from around the world and a focus on something specific that I hope will get your goat up a little bit. So this Once a Week podcast is available in every major podcast app and in the Crona Beha in Substack and Crona Beha in my new YouTube channel. The show is free to subscribe to now on all these mobile apps. I do have a donation tab on the Village Oak Tree webpage at rss.com and on my website www.cronabeha.com for anyone who feels generous enough to support my work much like passing a hat at the end of my visit to your village. Please share this podcast with everyone you know as much as possible in order to make a difference in our world before it gets too late to do anything. So a little about me, I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Kay, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we're sitting under your village oak tree where I bring you headlines and my take from news feeds and relevant blog articles that I think are important to know about. I try to find stories from around the world that are important to us all, no matter where we live. For each article I present to you, there will be links to read the stories in their entirety in the follow-up newsletters posted at medium.com, substat.com, and in the blog section of my website. During my break... I have created a short advertisement for my website. It's the only commercial here, so don't worry. So coming up in the second half, I have a lengthy op-ed about the corporate world and the government's marriage to it. So stay tuned. So let's see what we've got for news stories this week. Again, it's always a mixture of environment, politics, and a little bit of this Palestine stuff, uh, social injustice so my first story, and, so, and remember, some of these stories I, I've had in the queue here for about a week. U.S. State Department okay potential sale of Abrams' main battle tanks to Romania for estimated $2.53 billion. That's from the Pentagon in Reuters. So it's beginning to look like Christmas for American arm dealers. From Romania, in this article, on Bulgaria buying striker vehicles, things are starting to get a little scary on the Eastern Front these days. And these countries are beefing up their militaries. Good news for the arms dealers here in the United States. Bulgarian parliament okays $1.5 purchase of striker fighting vehicles from the US, again in rotors. The Eastern European countries are running scared, straight to the Americans for weapons to modernize their militaries after realizing that the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Given how crappy the Russian hardware is, It's about time they started buying from the Americans. Not that I'm advocating uh, military-industrial complex, but, you know, Americans do have to eat, and this is, you know, no way to do it. Germany pledges to make its military the backbone of defense in Europe, unquote, by Sabine Seibold, And this is another one from Reuters. Is anyone seeing a pattern here? Eastern Europe is gearing up finally. They're also buying more modernized weapons from the Americans. The Germans are deploying a permanent combat brigade to Lithuania soon to bolster the Eastern Front against the Russians. So basically what all these stories amount to is that all of these Eastern European countries and the Eastern border of Germany are beefing up their military hard now because they're afraid of the Russians. They're worried that the Ukraine's not going to hold them back. And now we're going to get into some politics some of immigration politics, I guess. The Shattering of Schengen, the map that reveals how 11 countries from France to Slovakia, Sweden to Germany are rebelling against EU free movement in the face of terrorism and out-of-control immigration by Sue Reid. And I got this from the Daily Mail out of the UK. So as the states in his article... More and more EU countries are starting to restrict movements across their borders because of illegal migrants and their fear of terrorists. The once free and open EU borders are becoming a thing of the past. Border checks are coming back. What's next? My next one is an article that I got from Substack. And it's by a noted journalist by the name of Chris Hedges. The War According to Hamas The Palestinian resistance understands its enemy. It has learned through experience how to fight it. This is not good news for Israel. And this came out of his Substack page. So I have a limited subscription to this Substack page, and I plan to use it wisely. This report tells a story from the Palestinian side, or more important, the so-called terrorist side of the war in Palestine. How they are prepared for what's happening right now, and expected it. They know the enemy now, and how to fight them. This will not be a quick conflict, but a protracted one. Wait and see. Anti-Palestinian sentiment arises amid bipartisan U.S. support for Israel. Both Republican and Democratic politicians have shown staunch support for Israel despite the mounting death toll in Gaza. This came out of Al Jazeera by Ali Har. More and more, this is how the U.S. wants to portray themselves. Accomplices to Genocide. They were all over the Serbians when they committed ethnic cleansing in Srebrenica and Sarajevo back in the 90s. The Americans were all over ISIS in Syria during their run. But Israel can commit their own brand of genocide in Gaza and ethnic cleansing in the West Bank, and the U.S. is going to applaud from the bleachers. This just shows the Islamic world just how much the West really cares about them. At some point, the bill for this will be rendered in American blood once again. Outrage grows after chilling call for genocide by a Florida Republican. Calls to censor Michelle Salzman, who said all of them, when Democrat asked how many dead Palestinians will be enough. And this came out of the Guardian.com by Arum Salam. This is what the American Republican Party really thinks of others like Palestinians and anyone else they don't like. What's that old saying? Just kill them all and let God sort it out? Now, I'm going to get a couple. I got a couple of articles here I picked up from Ireland, and this also involves the Palestinian conflict. Why Ireland's leaders are willing to be tougher on Israel than most. And I got this one from Euronews by Andrew Naughty. Ireland's Shenthin has been, has been and continues to argue in defense of the Palestinians, and have for a long time because of their affinity to colonialism, something they have about 900 years worth of bad experience with. Their fight is with Netanyahu and his government, not the Israeli people. Even the Irish Tasha has come out against what he calls a disproportionate response in violation of the Geneva Convention. The Irish don't care that they are an outlier in their views, and this view is across the board in both the North and the Republic side with the nationalists. Good for them. Keep it up. Sorry, Biden. Ireland's Sinn Fein embraces Palestinians and shuns Israel. Mary Lou Macdonald, whose Irish Republican Party is favored to win the next election, dumps her more nuanced stance on Israel in the face of grassroots anger over Gaza. And this came out of politico.eu. Sean Pogotsnik. Sinn feins 50-year alliance with Palestine is now front-page news in Ireland, and the likely next Taoiseach, Mary Lou Macdonald, isn't being circumspect on her views about it anymore. She's calling to have the Israelis expelled and ranting about the genocidal factions of Netanyahu's government. When before, she would make her views low-key to avoid pissing off the Yanks. Now she doesn't care whether Biden and company like what she has to say anymore. Good for her. I agree. Oh, you know, I agree with, you know, fine gale in his best not to expel the Israeli diplomats just yet, but certainly put them on notice until the hostages are released. Now my next one is more of a financial one but it has to do with the irish and the americans apple should pay 13 billion euros irish tax argues eu lawyer and i got this from bbc.com another story of mega corporations trying to take advantage of not paying their taxes ireland gave apple and other american corporations illegal tax advantages just to have the notoriety of their brands in the country ireland could sure use the money for things like housing and healthcare. care but instead wants to enjoy Apple, Meta, and Google, and others' fame, thinking it would bring in more money than the taxes owed. Not so much. And now, the EU is telling Yanks to pay up. Now I've got a couple of LGBTQ articles. And these go different places here in the world. Trans people can be baptized in the church and be godparents, says Vatican. Vatican Office adds there must be no situations in which there is a risk of generating a public scandal. And I got this from TheGuardian.com by Ashifa Kassar. It's not to set off fireworks with the conservatives around the world. The Vatican given some civil rights to transgender people, especially in the United States where LGBTQ plus people are under attack and hate for them has reached new levels recently in certain states. Imagine what the Catholics in the, in the United States are going to do with that. And this one goes to Hong Kong. Gay games delight Hong Kong amid China's growing hostility to LGBTQ plus community. Activists have secured a string of legal victories in Hong Kong, but it's a very different story on the mainland. And this came out of the Guardian.com world. Good news in Hong Kong for the LGBTQ plus people as mainland China is likely watching with a raised eyebrow, ready to step in if things get out of hand. Now, will Hong Kong be able to keep this community safe going forward? Time will tell. Now we're going to go back across the world to Europe again. This is an environmental article here from um, Sweden. Sami called to protect reindeer in Sweden after 10,000 road deaths in five years. Indigenous People's Parliament says action required, including lower speed limits and more fences. This came out of theguardian.com by Miranda Bryant. So as I said, it's an environmental story from Sweden. The indigenous Sami people are pushing to get more protections like fencing alongside the northern highways and other things to keep the reindeer off the roads and out of people's bumpers. Apparently, the roads have become quite the slaughterhouses these days with speeders and a lot of increased traffic. Now back to the United States. U.S. reduces beef exports as cattle herd shrinks, s- squeezing Tyson Foods by Tom Palancek. and This came out of Reuters.com as of Commodities. Uh, it's, It's a bit of a kind of an environmental article as well. This is labeled as a commodity story, but as I said, it's environmental. Because of the severe drought conditions in the U.S., they're having to import less expensive beef to satisfy their customers, and the biggest corporations are taking a hit. What's not to like? Quit eating beef. This will cut down on the methane pollution, and people will live healthier lives, less heart disease from clogged arteries, and a cleaner atmosphere. I have no sympathies whatsoever for the meat industry here in the United States and in South America. EU strikes a landmark deal on law to restore and protect nature. Legislation will set targets to restore 20% of EU land and seas by 2030 and 90% of degraded habitats by 2050, another article from the Guardian.com Environment. So it's really good news from the EU, although not everyone's on board. No matter, at least they are trying. Much better than their peers like the U.S. and the Australians. Earthshot Prize. Asia leads the way in quest to repair the planet. From BBC.com World News Asia. More good news about the environment and climate. A prize awarded for innovative conservation methods to hold off climate change and feed people. This is primarily an Asian thing, but the trustees are hoping that the West will get better involved with this soon. And now we're going to go across the world again to Kenya. Kenyans get tree planting holiday to plant 100 million seedlings from BBC.com World News by Basilio Rukanga. A good news story from the environment, Kenya has enacted a tree planting holiday to encourage its citizens to plant millions of trees to reverse deforestation by the global corporations. It's marginally successful, as not everybody's taking time off for work for this, but a good start. Now, if only other countries around the world would follow this model. I know North America; they do to us to an extent, but they don't give up, don't give up holidays. Corruption and rights abuses are flourishing in lithium mining across Africa. A new report finds, and this one is I've tagged this now because it's another African article, and it is environmental and it's also social, social injustice. The global clean energy transition could be a game changer for Africa. But exploitation of miners continues as many foreign mining companies ignore ignore local opposition by Katie Surma. And I got this from Inside Climate News. No real surprise. Mining corporations abusing local people and stealing the mineral wealth belonging to sovereign nations. Lithium has now become the new goal of the world as nations and corporations try to grab all the lithium they can for profits at the expense of anyone who gets in their way. Same old pattern for a new commodity. Now we're going to get into politics and religion, something the two don't mix. And this is from the United States, although it also comes from the Vatican. In a very rare move, Pope dismisses conservative U.S. Bishop Strickland by Philip Polella And this came out of Reuters.com World. The Catholic faith is being sorely tested in the United States with the removal of an ultra-conservative Texas priest earlier, and now a bishop of the same ultra-conservative cloth. seems that the Vatican is sending a message to the American Catholic Church. Stay out of politics unless you want to get fired. Will these ultra-conservative priests listen or go their own way? Well, that's a good question, and I'm only going to find out more. If I hear any more, I'll let you know. What do we know about forced labor in Xinjiang? And this came out of China by Amy Hawkins, and I got this from TheGuardian.com. Beijing says labor transfers are poverty alleviation tool, but research raises concerns schemes are not voluntary. Modern-day slavery with a different name once again. The world knows about the year-to-year internment and re-education camps, but now China is using the unemployed rural people to fill up the factories and farm labor gaps and to move right out of Chairman Mao's old playbook. If you're out of work, go work on a farm somewhere. And they did a lot of that back in the day. Looks like they're bringing it back. And this is another one here about cheap labor. And this one in the United States. Used as cheap labor. Luxury Aspen Resort abused visa program, lawsuit says. Ex-employees at St. Regis Resort alleged that they were recruited under the J-1 visa internship program and exploited to work for low wages. And this came out of the Guardian.com U.S. News by Michael Sanado. More evidence that corporations don't care about their employees recruiting highly qualified immigrants and treating them like indentured servants. How is this any different than the Chinese labor transfer program in, a, in the previous article? It isn't really, just a different name for it. And now, I got one last article here from the United States. A century later, U.S. Army Overturns Convictions of 110 Black Soldiers by Daniel Trotta in the Reuters.com World News. A day late, a dollar short for those convicted back then. Nothing for the 19 who were executed for standing up for themselves. Now the U.S. wants to make amends over 100 years later? More shameful bigotry exposed in a dying nation. That's the end of the first half. Now it's time for me to take my break. While I'm on my break, give a listen to my little promotional message from my website. And stay tuned for the op-ed of the week in the second half. I'll be back in a couple of minutes. I want to take this break to bring attention to my website, crownnebeha.com. Just type in www.crann-na-beatha.com in your browser and search for it. You may also use the link in the newsletters on medium.com, Substack.com, or the podcast transcripts on rss.com to find it for the first time. The name is Gaelic and it may be a little hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. Then bookmark it if you wish to return. I also have the RSS Feeder enabled so if you like my blog post, you can get a notice whenever I post something new. Search for cronabeja.com in your RSS Feeder. Users finding the website for the first time will reach the welcome page to learn a little bit about what's inside. There you will see the homepage link where you can learn a little more about what Kranabeha means. For a little bit of Irish culture and a little more about me in general. On the menu bar at the top, there are links to a blog section where I post podcast newsletters, blog articles, stories, and poems, a drop down menu with links to both podcasts, a donations page, an ad page for my published books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. Everything I write is available in the blog section of my website for free. If you like what you see and are feeling generous, feel free to leave a donation and or a message in the comment page anytime i'll respond fairly quickly within reason enjoy the music and i'll be back with the second half shortly Welcome back to the second half of the Village Oak Tree. I picked out this article on Veterans Day because it reminded me of my revelation, or epiphany if you want to call it, back in 2010 of the American military industrial complex and how it has corrupted the United States, turning it into an imperialistic country that it is now. So the story I picked out is a bit raw. I'll give you a warning ahead of time before I read it. If you are a true flag-waving American patriot, you might want to skip this part. This will seriously make you think about just how much the U.S. government has lied to its citizens since World War II, when the corporations figured out how much money they could make by manufacturing weapons for the U.S. government and sell the into surplus overseas to any country that had the money or could borrow the money to buy the weapons. The name of the article is entitled, On This Veterans Day, Remember That Soldiers Are Murderers and Your State An Imperialist Affront to Humanity, Not That Mine Is Any Better. Let's Talk About the Blood on Our Hands by Antonio Milano. A quote, he said, son, have you seen the world? Well, what would you say if I said that you could? Just carry this gun. You'll even get paid. I said, that sounds pretty good, unquote. Recently, I learned that in a bastion of progress, liberty, and democracy that is the U.S., there exists a thing called Veterans Day, a public holiday to commemorate the heroic deeds of the empire's countless spent abused, murderous, and traumatized soldiers and veterans. The Imperial Center celebrating its bloody instruments, parading them around, pledging their everlasting allegiance, and indoctrinating the rest of society in the process. Quite fitting. I'm not surprised. It is a curious circumstance that most veterans now have never seen a righteous war if such a thing exists. Most of those that fought Nazis are long dead. Instead, most former soldiers alive did their duty to the motherland in faraway lands few Americans can point out on a map, which nobody is asking for them. Spreading the neoliberal agenda, stripping resources, toppling democratically elected governments, killing millions, fighting competing ideology, leaving behind devastation, resentment, and fury, seeds of religious extremism, further entrenching the American Western hegemony. The empire must last a thousand years. The spice must flow. Black leather boots. Spit shine so bright. They cut off my hair, but it looked all right. We all became friends, and we learned how to fight. They picked them up from the apathetic dark alleys that speckle our capitalistic dystopia. Young men with nothing to lose. Angry men without purpose. Frustrated and eager for someone, anyone, to tell them what to do. In the strictest hierarchies imaginable, in pointless suffering, what they call learning discipline, in hyper-masculinity, in camaraderie, in inflicting pain, and endless generational trauma, lured by promises of a free college education, a thing that should be the norm anyway as it is in most developed nations, and being taken care of by the government in case of injuries, mutilations, and the inevitable post-traumatic stress disorder that will deservedly last a lifetime except in the case of the non negligible percentage of true sociopaths. One must contemplate this exchange. One must imagine the double thing necessary in the soldiers that just bombed innocents to find himself, to receive education, to make his family proud, to fight for his abstract flag, whatever he tells himself. Coming back from Iraq, returning from a mission to destroy and plunder, plunder a land, justified with obvious lies, and then re- being received a hero, a diseased nation instead. A hero of war. Yeah, that's what I'll be. And when I come home, they'll be damn proud of me. I'll carry this flag to the grave if I must, because it's a flag that I love and a flag that I trust. Can we fault those young idealists, those lost souls, propagandized and indoctrinated from childhood, forced in their classrooms to speak the holy words before being able to comprehend them, those who see no other way of finding meaning? No, it's not them I condemn. It's those vultures, those ghouls that prey and feed on them. Endless young fodder to fuel the war machine and the military-industrial complex that rules this forsaken nation. They scour the forums, the 4chants, the Reddits of the Internet. Endless ads and recruiting budgets, subtle and obvious, bots and legions, the spice must flow. South proclaimed leaders, Biden, Trump, Putin, Netanyahu, Xi Jinping, it truly does not matter who blabber endlessly about peace, liberty, democracy, and yet fuel every possible war, never letting them end. It's capitalism, stupid. Duh. Imperialism, colonialism, slavery, exploitation are merely necessary byproducts. It's how we in the West become rich in the first place, and no one will take that away from us, ever. Our military budgets will make sure of that, and there's always enough tinder to burn. Will we ever realize that every leader, every state, every soldier is the disease? Fuck your symptoms. Pull it out by the root. I kicked in the door. I yelled my commands. The children, they cried. But I got my man. We took him away, a bag over his face, from his family and his friends. I think there is now some feeble resistance to the war machinery. I think something broke after Iraq, and they got solidified by the black and white ideology of the West, demonstrated first with Russian versus Ukraine, and now Israel versus Palestine. The contradictions and the official are ever more difficult to reconcile with reality. The cognitive dissonance are ever more cumbersome to maintain. The propaganda and lies more obvious, contradictory information more easily available. We all remember the torture pictures from Abu Ghraib. We all know what happens in Guantanamo. We all read about the CIA's war crimes throughout the decades, particularly during the Cold War. We all recognize that we are ruled not by humans, but by capital. Politicians as much as slaves to it as we are, though some slaves are collaborators and do not deserve liberation. And we are increasingly unhappy and depressed with how things turned out. A dying planet, the death of human imagination, what we call capitalist realism, a bleak future. They took off his clothes. They pissed in his hands. I told him to stop, but then I joined in. We beat him with guns and batons, not just once, but again and again. Does this mean things will get better now? Yes, they will, after they get much worse. First, one day, soon enough, you'll find yourself living in a fascist darkness without ever having consciously noticed the process. You will find yourself in ever more wars as floods and droughts kill your neighbors. The last great mammal will die, and you will perhaps wonder what the hell happened, but then will be distracted by the need to survive, work, and provide for your family and yourself. You will never notice, except in those rare, clear instances, when the absurdity comes crashing down on you, unexpected, sudden, dense, so obvious. Yet those moments will all pass, like tears in the rain, and the struggle and everyday monotony, the habitual, will rule once more. At one point, perhaps already past, you will stop reading the news, for they are too depressing. And the powers that be will celebrate your ignorance, for it makes things so much easier. A hero of war. Yeah, that's what I'll be. And when I come home, they'll be damn proud of me. I'll carry this flag to the grave if I must, because it's a flag that I love and a flag that I trust. If we do nothing, if we continue celebrating murders, if we look away, we have already lost our humanity. People always wonder how the Nazis could rule with widespread public consent and then shy away as soon as they see it happen again in real time. The system is not redeemable, and not reformable. More people are realizing this than ever. Critical mass must be reached at some point, preferably before we all wage war over the last drinkable water. Yet the spice must flow. She walked through bullets in haste. I asked her to stop. I begged her to stay, but she pressed on. so I lifted my gun and I fired away. From Rise Against. And that's that article. As I said, it's pretty raw. It's right in your face. And it's probably not going to be well taken by a lot of people. But that's all right. That's the reason why I put it in here. Because I really want to upset people with this. During World War II, the United States government subsidized all the factories in the country, or nearly all of them, for the war machine in order to beat the Nazis. Everybody was on board with that. It was a righteous war and all that kind of good stuff. Well, after the war ended... The United States had all this military surplus on their hands. The United States government didn't want it. They were full. So what did they do? They found the markets overseas to start selling them like crazy. So with their aggressive sales tactics, they figured out it was pretty lucrative. Then the U.S. government stepped in and said, hey, we want to cut. They soon figured out that selling arms to just anyone wasn't such a great idea. So Congress decided that they needed to approve any major arms sales to foreign countries. So in other words... You have to go through Congress in the United States here in order to sell military hardware to a foreign nation. You know, they did this for national security reasons, of course. It's to catch all reason for nearly everything to do with foreign policy. So Antonio was writing this article. Americans have been long indoctrinated with pub- in their public elementary schools and that the U.S. is the greatest country in the world. They're the strongest, have the largest military, and so on. The U.S. does have the best toys. They do pay a lot of money to train their troops to the highest levels they can, but that all has limits, which they're finding out now. So I'm going to pause for a minute. I'm going to ask you all a question. What do you think is the definition of a mercenary soldier? I want you to think about that before listening to any more here, and I'm going to pause to to, to let you think about it. What is the definition of a mercenary soldier? Alright, so now that you've had a chance to think about it, I'm going to tell you what I got from Wikipedia. Mercenary, a mercenary, sometimes shortened to merc, also called a soldier of fortune, a hired gun, a freelance, or a sellsword, is a private individual who joins an armed conflict for personal profit, is otherwise an outsider to the conflict, and is not a member of any other official military. Mercenaries fight for money or other forms of payment rather than for political interests. Now I'm going to give you the definition of a soldier. Soldier. And it's again from Wikipedia. A soldier is a person who is a member of an army. A soldier can be conscripted or volunteer and are enlisted non-commissioned officer, warrant officers, and officers. And now again, this is read word for word out of Wikipedia. The thing is, they both get paid. Although most mercenaries get paid a lot more than common soldiers if they live to collect. Mercenaries don't get free any health insurance. They don't get any college benefits or any other benefits, depending on the country the soldier is fighting for. And I say this, soldiers, depending on the country they're fighting for, because not all countries give their soldiers benefits. The U.S. offer these and more for completion of a successful contract. Typically here in the United States, a successful contract, the United States military, lasts you six years, sometimes eight. You get four years of active duty, maybe six. You might get a little reserve time, but you're going to complete that contract successfully. In other words, stay out of trouble. The big thing about this, some countries are better. They have better benefits than even the United States, and a lot of them are worse. Soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines must take an oath of allegiance to their flag and country. Mercenaries must take an oath to fulfill their contract to whomever employs them. The Geneva Convention does not recognize mercenaries as soldiers and does not accord him the rights that national soldiers receive, such as classifications of a POW if you get captured. But in actual job descriptions, there's not a lot of difference between them other than ideology. One group fight, fights for an ideal, like for God and country and flag and stuff. The other fights for money, but they do the same jobs mostly, or at least the combatants do anyway. I'm making this distinction because right after World War II, When the U.S. decided that they needed to make the communists the new enemy of the state, the American military has been slowly turned into an army of mercenaries in a lot of ways. They're set off to fight foreign wars whenever needed to make money for corporate America. I know this because I was one of them. Multiple deployments for what? To make Americans rich and powerful. That's what. Why did the Vietnam War escalate beyond the initial special forces advisors? There was money to be made. McNamara admitted it years later, which his interview was hurriedly hushed after it got out. Military contracts, just like in World War II in Korea. Then the Cold War, when the U.S. and the U.S.S.R., mostly Russia, and China, decided to butt heads to see who's going to take over the most territories and fund the largest armies. Nuclear weapons became the new, shiniest toys for the world's bullies to parade around and threaten people with. Pretty soon, everybody had to have some. Once the U.S. figured out that they couldn't hoard all the nukes anymore, they started running around negotiating proliferation treaties for all the good they did. It did help some, but nowhere near enough. Now, I say that that they've helped simply because nobody set off nukes other than for testing um, since World War II, which is a good thing. Now, I have this next article from a guy by the name of Nate Baer that talks about American history, something you won't find in the U.S. without a lot of work. I say that because he lists a lot of reading in his article here that it will be hard to find for Americans these days. He lists required reading for anyone who wants to know just how bad the U.S. is regarding corporate interests as they have aligned with foreign policy through the years since World War II. I strongly recommend everyone find this and read it. It will be linked in my newsletters. If you're listening to this, Google it. Use AI to find it and read it. Now, I'm going to read it for you here and it might be a little bit long, so just bear with me. History does, in fact, exist. Causality Denial and Western Foreign Policy by Nate Baer. And this is another Substack article. I did not grow up in an alternative household. I was not exposed to ideas about the world outside of mainstream. When I left home at 18 to pursue an undergraduate degree in American Studies, I believed the U.S. was exclusively a positive force for good in the world. When I was 19, the U.S. and its allies invaded Iraq. It just so happened that as the shock and awe bombing of Baghdad began, I was reading books as part of my degree course that critiqued U.S. foreign policy from a non-mainstream perspective. This wasn't the history I'd been sold. As the bombs fell on Iraq, it felt like I was watching the collapse of my worldview in real time. After my undergrad degree, I decided to study for a master's in the history of international relations. Then, as now, I only ever wanted to understand why things are the way they are. Twenty years on, as U.S.-made missiles once again rained onto civilian populations, I remain as desperate as ever to make sense of the world. The first thing that has to be said about Israel's war on Gaza, a fact that our politicians and media are desperate to obscure, is that nothing began on October 7th. Hamas' attack was the spur for the most brutal round of Israeli violence against a Palestinian in decades. It was, however, just another round and a long one-sided fight. History, it turns out, does in fact exist. But often our elites don't want you to know this. A phenomenon I've seen time and time again this last month is what I would call causality denial, the denial that events precede events. Politicians and the media are always quick and eager to proclaim that terrorism is a surprise, a bolt from the blue. In their telling, events simply arise from nowhere. We saw it very clearly after the Hamas attack. Causalty denial was on full show. No context, just terrorism. The magic word used for decades to hypnotize us into unthinking state. This is not to hand-wave away any non-state violence, but it's necessary to understand how the ruling class so often employs the word terrorism to obscure deep historical context. The most basic and un- uncontroversial idea that things happen for a reason suddenly becomes taboo when the subject is one that media and politicians don't want us to examine too closely. Actions all of a sudden do not beget reactions. The past does not inform the present. Terrorism is because they hate our freedom, our democracy, our religion. Yet, conversely, when the U.S. and its allies want to do violence, our politicians and the media are then desperate for us to see the full and obvious context. Suddenly, actions do beget reactions— and these reactions are, of course, justified and pure of motive. We must invade Afghanistan. We must invade Iraq. We must invade Gaza. And we must do it for self-defense and in defense of freedoms, values, and ideals. This is, of course, a childish narrative that belongs only in a Marvel comic. Bad guys attack good guys, and good guys respond because values. So what is the truth? Truth is that Western countries have strategic interests, and often these interests coincide with supporting murderous governments, groups, and dictatorships. Israel today is one of those governments, as is Saudi Arabia, as were the governments Iran and Chile in the past. Six books help tell a different story to the marvel comic version of US and Western foreign policy that our media and governments want us to believe. The first is the, the Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. From 1965 to 1966, at the height of the Cold War, up to one million civilians were slaughtered and another million herded into concentration camps by Indonesia's President Suharto, who accused them of being communists. These atrocities, including mass rape and torture, occurred with the full knowledge and the backing of the U.S. and the West, who saw Suharto as a barrier against the spread of left-wing ideologies in Southeast Asia. The CIA would regularly hand over lists of suspected Communist Party members to Suharto's military, the world's fourth-largest country by size, as Communist Party was behind only Russia and China's incision influence. Wiping out communism via genocide in Indonesia was a central U.S. foreign policy goal. One astonishing fact about Western support for Suharto is how long it went on for. He only resigned in 1998 by then a billionaire several times over. The Clinton administration pursued close ties with Serardo and his brutal armed forces right until the end. William Bloom's book, Killing Hope, was a flashblank to my 20-year-old brain. A compendium of U.S.-supported coups from Albania to Iran, Greece to Co- Costa Rica, and everywhere in between, Bloom documents the 55 most democratically elected governments the U.S. has helped topple since the Second World War. Chile stands out, a country that elected socialist Salvador Allende in 1969 only to be plunged into a right-wing dictatorship four years later. Allende's crimes in the eyes of the U.S. were many, not least nationalization of its copper mines alongside 150 of the largest companies in the country. Unclassified documents reveal the CIA supported the opposition, and had full advanced knowledge of the military coup undertaken in September 1973. Allende shot himself in the head, rather than taken prisoner, as the military closed in around the presidential palace. The ensuing 15-year dictatorship of Military General Augusto Pinochet said thousands of political opponents, many young students, murdered or disappeared. The CIA made many of Pinochet's officers into paid contacts with the CIA and U.S. military. Joe Biden said recently, the U.S. is the most powerful country in the history of the world. He's probably right, certainly from a military perspective. The U.S. has 750 military bases in at least 80 countries around the world. In the Middle East, these bases have been a key antagonizing factor in making the U.S. a target for terrorism. The explicitly stated goal of Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda was to get the U.S. bases out of the Middle East after their permanent establishment following the first Gulf War in 1991. The strategy culminated in 9-11, the plan being to force the U.S. to overreact, drag it into regional conflicts, which would incite religious wars and lead to the creation of an Islamic caliphate. The region would then be free of U.S. influence and of the sheikhs and Arab rulers that did their dirty work. It was briefly partly successful, Al-Qaeda, of course, having gone from an ally in the 1980s to a sworn enemy less than 15 years later. Written after the failure of the Arab Spring, Christopher Davidson's book, The Secret Struggle for the Middle East, includes this history of Western support for al-Qaeda and shows, using archives and official cables, how the British and Americans have, used, have often forged relationships with Islamic militant groups, usually as a ploy against Arab nationalists and Democrats who threaten Western control of Middle Eastern oil. Quote, The U.S. needed to ensure that weak governments were in place that could serve the West. So we see throughout the 20th century, strategies used by the U.S. to stop nationalist governments, nationalist fronts, and halt the rise of democratic governments. A famous example is the overthrow of the secular Iranian leader, Mohammad Mossadegh. After Mossadegh won power in 1951, he nationalized Iran's oil fields, so MI6 and the CIA plotted his overthrow. In 1953, with the U.S. and British support, the religious rule of the Shah of Iran was reimposed. Mossadegh was ousted, and Iran signed over control of 40% of its oil to U.S. and British oil companies. Moving to the 21st century, Davidson shows how the Western policy of the Middle East, including the invasion of Iraq and support for countries like Saudi Arabia, led to the rise of ISIS and jihadist militant groups. Quote, The primary blame for not only the failure of the Arab Spring, but also the dramatic and well-funded rise of Islamic extremist organizations since the late 20th century, including the deadly Al-Qaeda and now the blood-curdling Islamic State, must rest with the long-running policies of successful imperial and advanced capitalist administrations and their ongoing manipulations of an elaborate network of powerful national and transnational actors across the Arab and Islamic worlds, unquote. One of the most important books documenting how U.S. and Western policy works is by a former president who was on the receiving end of Western regime change. Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, wrote Neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism while he was president and before he was deposed in a CIA-80 coup. Nkrumah was Ghana's prime minister when it was still a British colony and then his first president as an independent country. He writes that when formerly colonized countries win independence, colonizing nations shift tactics from colonialism to neocolonialism. Quote, without a qualm, it dispenses with its flags and claims that it is giving independence to its former subjects to be followed by aid for their development. Under cover of such phrases, however, it devises innumerable ways to accomplish objectives formerly achieved by naked colonialism, unquote. The explains how countries are acquired by the World Bank International Monetary Fund to submit their policies and plans for review and must accept agencies' supervision of their use of loans, unquote. Quote, These agreements give Western countries the right to meddle in internal finances, including currency and foreign exchange, to lower trade barriers in favor of the donor country's goods and capital, to protect the interest of the private investments, they forced the recipient to supply raw materials to the donor and to buy goods from the donor nation, unquote. Nekrumah peeled back the veil on the exploitive agreements with the Global South that persist to this day. Global South countries are now trades in debt to the West and spend about 60% of their revenues on debt repayment every year. No list of books about Western foreign policy would be complete without Noam Chomsky. In Hegemony or Survival, Chomsky mashes up Blum and Nekrumah To show how U.S. foreign policy is not undertaken for values or ideals, but for interests, ultimately to maintain its position of the world's singular empire and the ability to dictate the neocolonialism Krumah wrote about. Chomsky seeks answers for why the U.S. arouses anger and finds history not far away. Quote, a well-known Egyptian academic traces hostility towards the U.S. to its support for every possible anti-democratic government in the Arab-Islamic world when we hear American officials speaking of freedom, democracy, and such values, they make terms like these sound obscene, unquote. An honorable mention goes to Jeremy Scahill's Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield. In it, Scahill shows how covert U.S. missions expanded during the so-called War on Terror, including targeted killings, secret prisons, and the massive expansion of drone warfare outside of the scope of congressional approval. It shows how these operations are often done on the word of the President, with Obama a key figure in ratcheting up the U.S.'s secret killing program during his time in power. This book was made into a documentary, which makes its content very accessible. As we watch the West supply the missiles and political support for the government composed of extremists and declared fascists to massacre thousands of civilians, this reading list shows us we are not witnessing a historical aberration. Is fully consistent with Western foreign policy over the last 80 years. What are the reasons this time? Regional geopolitical interest, as ever, with the Islamists of Iran now the enemy. Oil and gas, as ever. A a racism that sees brown lives as worthless, as ever. A deeply embedded group of lobbyists responsible for billions of dollars. And historical guilt for the most murderous part of the 20th century on top. This consistency with the past should not, however, be a reason to feel defeated by dismay. This consistency should be the reason to speak up more loudly than ever, to educate and to protest, to let our governments know we see them, to continue to say, not in our name. And that's that article. So the Americans, as it talks about in this article, and I'm going to expound on here a little bit, continue to bully less fortunate countries into doing their bidding and have done so through the decades, you know, since the end of World War II. All they succeeded in doing was making things worse. The current wars in Ukraine and Palestine are perfect examples of meddling gone wrong. The U.S. meddling in South America since the 1980s has morphed into the refugee crisis they're seeing on their southern border right now. I don't advocate for nationalism or isolationism, and that just makes people crazy. The United States has had their own bad experiences with that, and it just made things worse. Isolationism got them late into World War I. Isolationism made them tardy for World War II. It took the attack on Pearl Harbor to wake up the U.S. from their security of their isolationism, and they haven't looked back since. Instead of finding a happy middle ground, the United States has gone full charge around the world, trying to be the world's police force, as they marketed themselves for years. What that got them was the loss of over 50,000 Americans and pushed out of Vietnam with their tail between their legs in 1975. 9-11 in Iraq. 20-plus years of war with over 7,000 service members and 8,000 contractors dead for oil security. Now the U.S. is fighting wars between adversaries. Ukraine needs help. But the Israelis? They have all the tools they need to do what they're doing thanks to the U.S. arms dealers in Congress. The military-industrial complex is always ready to go supply to whomever or whatever is needed. To whoever with taxpayer money. All the government has to say is who to sell it to. It doesn't get more lucrative than that. The contractors get paid from both ends, as long as they give Congress members their cut. Nowadays, that means funding elections for congressmen and women. Now, these military contractors have built the United States military for millions of dollars over the wars that never should have happened. In 2001, the U.S. should have satisfied themselves with a mission complete after taking out the al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. They never should have invaded Iraq like they did in 2003, but egomaniacal leaders squandered lives and billions of tax money for oil and personal gain via things like no-bid contracts. Afghanistan was reverted back to Taliban rule after forcing the Americans to retreat, much like the Americans did in Vietnam. The U.S. military is still in Iraq and now in Syria in a limited amount, For what? National security, they say. Seems like a catch-all. The U.S. has made such a mess of things because of oil and greed that now they are on the verge of collapse due to infighting and cultural divides. They're so far in debt, they may never recover. The government bonds they used to sell their debt with are becoming too risky to buy anymore, and countries are backing off. The greedy corporations are bleeding the country dry, and a large part of the people aren't smart enough to see it. Of course, the media isn't publishing much on this either. All the people know is that they are getting poorer and poorer every year, and they want it to stop. A large portion of them are mindlessly willing to follow an admitted autocrat just to try and stop the financial hemorrhaging. They are desperate, and almost to the point of not caring about democracy anymore. With this latest full support of Israel's right to defend itself, the U.S. has lost favor with a lot of countries, more so than before. The Biden administration has probably lost the Islamic vote within the U.S. over this. Not that they've made up a large part of the electorate, but the outrage is spreading amongst the younger voters with large protests all over the Western world, both pro-Palestine and pro-Israel. Will this turn into a repeat of the anti-war protests from the Vietnam War days? It's starting to look like it. And all for what? Oil, and in large part, military hardware sales. Israel has been one of the biggest customers for the military-industrial complex over the decades since the 1960s, mostly from the Americans. Now that they have found a lot of oil under Gaza, there is even more reason to be Israel's BFF. My own personal experiences dealing with American foreign policy came from when I was deployed to Afghanistan as part of the NATO forces back in 2002. I ran into so much bureaucracy while trying to provide basic services for the local people where I was located, that I finally gave up and just did my time until I rotated home. All the American State Department wanted to fund was schools, because they made good public relations for the media back in the U.S. I was told this story firsthand by an American reporter who was embedded with my my team for a couple of weeks. Things like electricity, clean water, sanitation were off the list because Americans back home don't care if third-world countries have things like that, as I was told. I learned different later. But I was long gone by then, and the US had moved on from winning arts and minds by doing infrastructure projects. That was when I realized that the US government wields their military like a cudgel at times, and like a skinny knife at other times. Whatever they need to do for national security, nothing is off the menu. Waterboarding and other tortures have been used for decades, using the terrorist label rather than a POW label for captured accused combatants to get around the Geneva Convention. Throwing an unprepared army at a country, secure the oil wells and oil shipping ports against the recommendations of the top general, and then dismissing him when he disagreed with policy in public. Then, when it all falls apart due to mismanagement, blame the military for the mistakes of the bureaucrats. All over North in the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s, General Shinseki in the planning for the Iraq invasion in 2003, hanging General Colin Powell out to dry, and so many others. If anyone says that the United States has no imperialistic ambitions, I would say look at what history books are still available all the way back to the Spanish-American War. The U.S. acquired a lot of territory by defeating the Spaniards back then. They have quietly acquired more through the decades since. Why did the U.S. secure Alaska? Because they knew what resources were available up there and needed a buffer against the Russians. In a nutshell, money and power. Canada wasn't much of a country yet, so they were of no help when the U.S. purchased Alaska. And the Americans stole Hawaii from the indigenous Polynesians because of a corporate agricultural lobby. How much territory do you think the United States controls around the world now? They control Guam, a territory which has a bunch of military bases on it. The poor Guamanians aren't real fans of the U.S., but they really like the money and don't have a lot of choice. Until this year, the Marshall Islands was a trust territory, until the U.S. dissed them. Now they're courting the PRC. Micronesia is still a trust territory, for now. The Virgin Islands, American Samoa, the North and Marianas Islands, and Puerto Rico are territories. They have 750 military bases around the world in over 80 countries. And a lot of local people are not big fans of the ugly, arrogant Americans around these bases. How is this not imperialism or colonialism? Some of these colonies are starting to complain about the U.S. not living up to their parts in the agreements they made. Kind of made familiar history. How about all the Indian treaties they did back in the 19th century? They broke all them, too. The Marshall Islands have embraced the Chinese as their new protectors, only because the Americans said, "Psh, who cares? Okinawa has long complained about American arrogance and the rapes and murders of their people and want the Americans gone. But the Japanese government is saying, oh, no, we need the Americans. We we can't do without them. Afghanistan and Iraq are in shambles after the Americans invaded and left. South America is in shambles after American interventions. The Middle East as a whole is on the verge of a regional war because of Western interference over oil and fears of national security after 9-11. The Americans have been complicit in nefarious dealings in Africa through the years, and American corporations are stirring things up again with trying to steal resources. Like that article in the first half I told you about lithium. When will the Americans learn that they can no longer run all over the world with a big stick, bullying countries into one-sided trade deals that shaft the locals? The United States military isn't what it used to be anymore. Their armies are tired, worn out, and undermanned. Their naval ships are in bad need of spare parts and crews. Recruiting attempts are failing miserably, despite added incentives. But the U.S. government doesn't want anyone to know that. On the other side of the ocean, China has more and newer ships, better repair facilities, and a larger army. Their training may not meet the same standards as the U.S. and the other richer Western countries, but it's not for lack of trying. The U.S. is still trying to intimidate the world with their carriers and submarines, but that is starting to wear a little thin in some places. I don't think any standing national army is full of sociopathic murders. There always will be a few small that make it past the screening, and their sociopathic tendencies show up later. As a whole, most soldiers enlist to serve their country because of the propaganda they receive at home, from parents and peers, or for the pay and benefits promised. I, like many others, ran away to the military to escape a bad home life and use my service to learn trades and how to take care of myself. This is not wrong, just misguided. It's one thing to fight in order to defend your homeland from invaders, but it's a whole other thing to be sent to another sovereign nation uninvited, to secure a resource for a government and private corporations. It's a whole other thing to use your overwhelming military strength to wipe out whole populations in retaliation for a strike against your citizens. Cruelty should not beget a larger cruelty, something mankind has yet to learn. I stopped believing in the United States as a beacon of hope to the rest of the world after my return home in late 2002 from Afghanistan. A few years after I left the army, I became very disillusioned. I'm no longer sure I wanted to live in the U.S. anymore. I still don't 21 years later. I only stay for family reasons. If I could move all my children and grandchildren to a better country, I would not hesitate without question. I stepped back from believing in the ideals that have been thrust down my throat since childhood and actually started paying attention to what the rest of the world has been saying about the once great United States. And the reviews are getting worse every year. This latest debacle of taking sides with Israel and looking the other way as IDF wipes out Palestinians by the thousands has tarnished the American image even more, and they're not likely to get it back. The world is moving on without the U.S. being a key player anymore, despite all the promotions from influencers like Antony Blinken. The world is still influenced by the U.S. for now because they have had their hands in everybody's business for so long. It's hard to remove them now. The countries that are tied with the U.S. can't just cut them off cold turkey without severe economic losses, for now. But the tide is turning, and within a few more years, unless some massive cultural change happens, the U.S. will be sitting on the sidelines, broke as hell, watching the world play their games of empire around them. The world's police force no more. Meanwhile, their military-industrial complex and corporate supporters will have moved on to another country where the profits are better, like any other corporate mercenaries. Money is money, and the global corporate world owes no allegiance to any flag or nation. Their only allegiance is to whomever will buy their deadly products. So that's the end of the show this week. I'm going to leave you with this thought. What do you think of the United States' stance on Israel right now? Do you condone indiscriminate bombing and shooting taking place, all in the name of national security? Even though now the U.S. is asking Netanyahu softly, could you please stop? after nearly 12,000 dead and unaccounted for? A bit late, don't you think? Boru Mahogat, thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it, and that you'll return again for another episode of The Village Oak Tree. Feel free to share this with your friends and relations. The more you share, the more we can convince enough people to make the world a better place to live in. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree today. As a Shauna I want to continue to travel to your digital village every week to bring you something that might bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. Schlange foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.